0: We're so glad to get to to worship together today, and uh, and what a what a great Sunday to have Ethan and his family here. We're gonna do a um, we're gonna recognize the folks that are heading on some mission trips um, at the end of the service and pray for them. Just to be a, a sending body is a beautiful thing, um, and the Lord blesses that type of generosity. You know, we we've got Carl Truman next week. You just got me this week, y'all. We're gonna have a great time, though. Um, We got uh, we got John chapter ten, the second half of the chapter, verses twenty-two to forty-two. And this these past couple of weeks, I have so enjoyed um, as Jason's led us as we've walked through. um, We've we've had the blind man. We've had Jesus being the good shepherd. Such rich. Uh, glimpses into the life and ministry of the man that we gather around each week to worship. Uh, so let me, let me read this passage to you, and, uh, and I'll pray, and then we'll dig in. At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple and the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and they said to him, "'How long will you keep us in suspense? "'If you're the Christ, tell us plainly.' "'Jesus said to them, "'I have told you, and you do not believe. "'The works that I do in my Father's name "'bear witness about me, "'but you do not believe "'because you are not among my sheep. "'My sheep hear my voice. "'I know them. "'They follow me. "'I give them eternal life.' They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. And then the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you so many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am a son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign." But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Father, we thank you that you have given us this record of Jesus and what took place in this incredible moment at the colonnade in the temple. Lord, would you open our eyes to the man himself, the one who loves us, more than anyone, the one who gave his life for us, would you help us to see Jesus in his glory and may we be compelled to hear and follow. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, this is is such a great chapter with so much in it, I'm glad I only have the second half. We'll take an intermission at about noon and then we'll finish up at the five. Uh, it, it is really such a great passage, so here's what's going to happen. We're going we're to look at this whole thing, but you're going to have snippets that are given to you, and I encourage you throughout the rest of the day, uh, tomorrow during the holiday, let your mind kind of dance around in some of these beautiful, incredible, deep moments in the life and ministry of Jesus. You know, this, this takes place at an interesting time of year. It's winter, obviously. And I'll just underline a few things because I know it's a little bit difficult to see with all these words on the screen, but obviously it's winter, says so right there. And this takes place at the Feast of Dedication. So this is actually Hanukkah. And some folks say this is the oldest written reference to Hanukkah that exists now, I, I'm not sure if that's, if that's accurate. I did a little digging, and there's some discrepancy, but it is definitely, if not the oldest, one of the oldest references to Hanukkah that exists, and it's in the New Testament. And so this is not one of the seven feasts that God ordained for all Jews to participate in, but clearly Jesus was participating in the Festival of Lights. So he gathered on the eastern side of the temple at Solomon's Colonnade and he's, he's there and he's walking around. And we don't know if he's with other disciples or if it's just him. And so he, we have this picture of Jesus walking around in the winter, wonder if he's bundled up. Um, Jerusalem can get cold in the wintertime and he is there in the temple celebrating the Festival of Lights. You know, I I do think that it's, without going into the whole history of Hanukkah, I do think it's important that we understand a little bit of what's happening here. And I think it's part of the reason that John includes this reference in this passage. He didn't have to include this. I think this is, there's a reason, though, the Holy Spirit inspired him to put the time of year and the festival that was happening. So now, if you are prone to motion sickness, I encourage you to not look at the screen. Here we go. All right. Now, I'm going to give you a, uh, I'm going to give you just a little backdrop here. So, so there was a guy, uh, a, a Syrian king, um, and he was. Uh, 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 his, his name is pronounced three or four different ways, but Antiochus is how I'll say it. So, Antiochus, the Syrian king, came in. Uh, this is pre the time of Jesus, he came in and he took over Rome or took over Jerusalem and he killed a bunch of the Jews. But not only did he kill a bunch of the Jews, Antiochus pillaged the temple. When he pillaged the temple, he carried off the golden altar, he carried off the, the menorahs, he carried off the sacred vessels. But then listen to this. Antiochus went into the holy part of the temple with a pig in tow, went to the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig. Now you talk about desecration of your faith. This is when you wonder if if God is even there. And he kills this pig and then he orders, only pigs can be sacrificed in the temple of the Almighty God. He stops allowing the Jews to have Shabbat. They can't have Sabbath. They can't do circumcision. There's a lot of things they can't do, and he only allows these pigs to be sacrificed. And then one day, when he was just really feeling his oats, he sacrificed a pig. He boils the pig, cooks the pig, all in the temple, then takes the broth left over and pours it over the Torah scrolls. Well... You know some of the rest of the story. A man named Judas Maccabees of a, this family of priests, he, he just couldn't handle it anymore. And so a revolt began and father and son and others began to, to kill these Syrians and, uh, and, and they started as guerrilla warfare. Then it became organized all-out warfare and they ran off the, Syrian, the Syrians. And when they did, when they finally had freed themselves, the first thing they did was go to the temple and they they want to they want to do something to reignite the worship of God, and all they can think to do is to light the nair tamid. And this nair tamid is called the eternal light. It's the little lamp. I'll just give you a little illustration. It's this little lamp, and it hangs. And this little lamp that hangs has one little. It's it's a little clay pot and it has a little wick that comes out of it, and at the bottom of it is olive oil. They go to light this lamp. For some reason, uh, Antiochus had not destroyed this one thing. Everything else was gone. And they said, we've got we've to show that the eternal light of God still exists. Well, they go to light it, but as they do, they realize there's only enough, enough oil for one day. It takes seven days to prepare olives to go from the tree to being ready to go into the holy part of the temple. And so they said, you know what? Prepare the olives. We're going to light the lamp. And they do. They light the lamp, and the lamp burns that day. And as the story goes, it burns for seven more days. That's why Hanukkah lasts eight nights. It's the festival of lights, and it's the festival... Of the eternal light. I think that's why John opens this part with this. Don't you wonder what was going on in Jesus' mind as everybody's celebrating this great victory over the Syrians and how God sustained them? When in their midst walks the light that shines in the darkness, in their midst is walking the light of the world the true eternal light is gathered right there. And I wonder how many saw, because I bet most missed. So I think that's why John includes that, that, that the light of the world uh, was was right there among the midst, and and then every year, you know, when we have Hanukkah, uh, there's so many Jewish people that are celebrating the, the the eternal light. When at the same time, so many Christians are celebrating the light of the world. Jesus Himself, one one and a half chapters over, calls Himself the light of the world, John 8, 12. and yet. They wanted to continue snuffing him out. Well, again, don't look at the screen. Here we go. All right, we scroll back. I say that because when I, have, when I sit in your seat and, and when we're scrolling, sometimes I'm like, this is like a roller coaster. And other times I'm like, I'm just gonna look away. Uh, <clears throat> you know, so as he's walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, and then right here, so these Jews gather around him and they said to him how long will you keep us in suspense if you were the Christ tell us plainly now Jesus tells them in in verse 25 he says i told you and you do not believe but You know, college. I think is the first time that you really get your faith tested, especially if you're a church kid. And I was a church kid. I grew up going to church. Uh, I I really, really came to faith right before college. My life was radically changed. But when you go to college, you're like, I'm such a strong Christian. And then you have a philosophy class, and you're like, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe Christians are the biggest idiots in the world Um, because you're you're first really faced with these challenges Uh, and. And then this is also the first time that I heard some people uh, who, in my mind, they must have read the Bible 10 times and they knew it so well because they could say, they could ask these challenging questions. Come to find out later, most of them had never really read the Bible. They were just parroting other things that they had heard other people say. But um, I remember a person saying, you know, Jesus never really said he was the son of God. That's something that Christians have put on him. He never even claimed that. And, uh, and I was like, oh, is that true? And, uh, and, and they're saying right here, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus had, he had told them plainly. He's about to, in this passage, tell them really plainly. But one thing that is important to remember, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. And rabbis tell things different than you and I tell things. Uh, for instance, I heard this story about a lady a few years ago who went to Jerusalem on a, on a trip to the Holy Land. And when she was on this trip to the Holy Land, she went to an art store because she wanted to take home a gift to remember her trip. And so she goes to this art store. She didn't realize, though, that a, a rabbi owned the art store. And so the rabbi comes up to her and, uh, and he says, have you found one that you like? And she turned to him and, uh, and she said, which one is your favorite?" And to her surprise, he said, do you have children? And she said, yeah, I have children. He said, how many? She told him how many. He said, boys or girls? And she told him a little bit more about the family. And and then after telling this whole thing about her family, he looked at her and he said, which one is your favorite? And she realized, oh, they're all his favorite, just like they're all my favorite. And so he clearly answered her. But you and I in our Western context, we're like, just tell me which one's your favorite. And the rabbi's like, I did. I told you exactly which one is my favorite. Just like you told me which one of your kids is your favorite. Uh, and I think that it's important for us to realize that Jesus did plainly say that he's the son of God. He says it many times, and he's about to say it very, very clearly, because what happens If we start getting wishy washy in these kinds of things, well, think about back to the college experience. If I start getting sideways because I'm pressured by some cultural arguments, well, my economics can be affected, my politics can be affected, my understanding of gender and sexuality can be affected. My leisure can be affected. That's a reason that I'm very excited to have uh, Carl Truman with us next week because he's an expert in what happens when these things start to slip and go sideways. So I'm excited for you to hear him next week as he will really help us understand this. Jesus answers them after they ask that question. He says, I told you and you don't believe the works that I do... This is very important. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you are not my sheep. So Jesus tells them, I have told you plainly, but also my works. Now, this is really important. On Tuesday nights with our our young adults, we've been going through um, Matthew, and and just like on Sunday morning when we go through the book of John, um, we we pause and do these little series in between, but it's so good to get back into Matthew. It's so good to get back into John here, but... We've been looking at Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 8, which, uh, which had happened uh, in, in plain sight of so many folks, Jesus had been showing his works. And what his works are associated with is his authority. And so I'll just give you a, a quick little example here. <clears throat> so in Matthew chapter 8, it starts off, <clears throat> there is a, uh, there's a guy with... Um, There's a guy with, what's it called when you, leprosy. There we go, a guy with leprosy. There is a Roman centurion, and then there's a whole bunch of sick people. Jesus heals the leper. Jesus heals the centurion's servant. And Jesus heals all of these sick people. And so what does it show? He's showing Jesus has authority over sickness. After that, there's a scribe and then there's a disciple. They both want to follow Jesus, but Jesus says to one, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So we have an indication the scribe didn't follow Jesus. The the disciple wants to follow Jesus, but he wants to, to go take care of his family. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. What Jesus is showing is he wants to have authority over us. Then there's the famous scene of Jesus calming the storm. We see the disciples scared. One is seasick. That's not in the text. I made that up. Um, But we see that Jesus has authority over nature. And then the chapter ends with that famous scene of the two demoniacs. Jesus cast out the demons into a herd of pigs. They run off the cliff. And what do we see here? Jesus has authority over spirits. So in one chapter... Matthew illustrates Jesus' works show his authority. This man has authority over spirits. He has authority over nature. He has authority over sickness. And one day, he will have authority over all of us. And he's asking us now to have authority over us. So in this passage, he's saying, I have shown you my works And you don't believe because you're not one of my sheep. He says some very, very powerful things in the next few verses. I want you to understand that verses 27, verses 27 through 30, are so powerful. I'm going to explain it to you briefly, but let me tell you how powerful they are. Most of the rest of the New Testament... When you read Paul's writings, whenever he has a theological teaching moment, he's unpacking a lot of what Jesus said in these few verses. It has taken volumes and volumes to unpack what Jesus could say so succinctly and so quickly. It's incredible what he's about to say. He... He says to these folks, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So let's just highlight a couple of things. One, he says, my sheep hear his voice. He says he knows them and they follow him. He gives eternal life, never perish, and then no one will snatch them out of my hand. Then his father, who has, this is important, given them to him is greater Than all, and no one is able, there's that word again, to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You see, there's two sets of hands here. Two sets of hands that Jesus says, hold every one of his sheep. I want to just take a second and try to illustrate this for you because I think this is this is worth drawing out for you. Jesus says that he speaks and the sheep hear his voice. And then the sheep follow. Now, we're following along in the text look at these verses 27 through 30 he said my sheep hear my voice i know them they follow me and i give them eternal life they will never perish now we have to we have to infer here what how does that work well let's use john 316 for instance for god so loved the world that what does he do He gives his son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then let's take 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so what do we have here? We have Jesus who we know is holy because he and the Father are one, he is God, and we have the sheep, which is us, which are sin. Well, what what happens? Well, God imputes his righteousness on us, takes our sin, and there's this transaction where then we become holy, and he becomes sinful. He takes that sin to the cross Where sin is then defeated. And at that point, he rises from the dead, and Jesus is altogether holy. He wraps us up in his work. But not only does he wrap us up in his work, look at the text. He says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So what do we have here? We have the Father who loves us so much that he sent his Son also wrapping us up. And then in conclusion, Jesus says, and I and the Father are one Where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves right in the center of this divine love between Father and Son. In these few short verses, Jesus says, I have given everything and I have wrapped them up. The Father has given me and he has wrapped them up. They are wrapped up in our divine love between God the Father and God the Son. And I know that this is not a full, complete picture of the Trinity because the Holy Spirit is not written out, and that's okay. This is good for right now, but there is much more, and that's why Paul spends most of his writings explaining this. But what we find ourselves, if you are a sheep of God, is covered up and the love of the Father, and the love of the Son, the love of the Spirit. We are held so deep that we have to have this anthropomorphism of hands holding us because it's impossible for us to understand. You, my brother or sister in Christ, you are as secure as secure can be in the center of this. That's why Paul says... What can separate us from the love of God? Can death or life or angels or demon or heights or depths, what can get you if you're here? What can get you if you're in the center of all this? Recently, I've had so many conversations. It's been been very interesting, multiple conversations, some in my office, some over here in the lobby, some in this room, some on the phone, some in text, but it's been people questioning their salvation. It's been people questioning, am I really a child of God? Am I really born again? Am I really a Christian? And I'll listen to the story because I never want to talk someone into thinking that they are a Christian that's a, that's a bad thing when people do that. So I'll listen to the story and they'll explain. They'll explain Jesus and the cross. They'll explain their sinfulness, their total depravity. They'll explain this incredible understanding of the grace of God, the, the, the faith that, that we have that's given by God to come to Him. They'll explain that it's not by works. They'll explain all these things, and I'll and they'll explain even life change. And I'll say, We're, I don't understand. Why are you questioning your faith? Why are you questioning your salvation? And what I find when I talk to them is that the focus of their faith is not Jesus, but the focus of their faith is how hard they can believe in him. And if the object of my faith is how strong my faith is, I am always going to waver back and forth in indecision. In Christianity, though, what counts is not the size of your faith or even the strength. It just takes a little faith. What counts in Christianity is the object of your faith. And if the object of your faith is this man in John 10, come hell or high water, you're fine, friends. Because he's got you in his hands. And the Father's got you in his hands. It doesn't get any more secure. You can relax when the waves are crashing into the boat. And you can relax if it's a beautiful Sunday afternoon and you're just hanging with your friends and family. He's got you. Well, as this, this chapter begins to, this, this section begins to wind down. I call this, I call this next scene, the Rocky Balboa scene um, from Rocky IV, from Rocky Four the greatest of all Rocky movies, although I did think the newest ones were pretty good. Uh, but this is, the, this is the Ivan Dragov, Rocky in Russia they're fighting. This is that scene here in, in some ways. So he has this incredible moment with them, and then what do they do? They pick up stones to stone him. They, they just, they're just so frustrated. The Jews pick up stones again to stone him. They try to kill Jesus so many times. And, and Jesus answers them, I've shown you so many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I just want you to know how brave Jesus is. I think I spent most of my life trying to be brave because at heart I'm just I'm scared of a lot of things my first thought a lot of times is is fear and so and so I'm like well how do I overcome that well, let's go do that thing Jesus was so brave They pick up stones to stone him and he leans into them I love that He leans into them and he says what are you going to kill me for You're going to kill me for all the good works that I did and they said, It's not for good works that we're gonna stone you, it's for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus said to them, and before I get into this, here's what is so is so incredible in this next little little section. What we see here is Jesus is about to go to work on these guys. But the difference, I'll just go ahead and tell you, the difference between Jesus and Rocky, Rocky like goes to work on whoever he's fighting, right? Like that's, that's why we watch the Rocky movies. He's always fighting someone bigger and stronger and somehow he wins. Uh, Sylvester Stallone, he just keeps on going. And so Rocky like always comes back and wins. But the thing about Rocky IV is at the end of the movie, you remember the end of the movie? And if you haven't seen it, it's a great Memorial Day movie, go watch that. Um, but at the end of Rocky IV, he says, he kind of like curls down the bottom lip and he says, if eyes can change, if yous can change, we can all change. And why does he say that? He says that because he hates Ivan Drago to begin with. And as the fight goes on, he begins to win the hearts of the people. And he has this incredible respect for Ivan Drago, the guy that he's fighting. And everybody at the end, it's this, it's this like really kind of bloody but happy moment where everybody loves each other. Jesus is an incredible fighter but he never has to realize at the end that, oh, I love them, by the way. The reason he fights for you and for me and the reason he busts up our lives sometimes is all because he loves. He never realizes at the end, oh, yeah, I love them too. No, he loves us the whole time and that's why he leans in and engages. So, he, uh, he, he, he is the true king of kings in this humble, suffering servant body. And he leans in. And then he begins to challenge them. And he challenges them using scripture. He said to them, I'm in verse 34 here. He said to them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. But if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father Jesus takes this really interesting psalm and in the middle of people about to stone him, he uses this really interesting and complex psalm in a way that seems so simple. It's like we all should have learned it day one coming into church. I want to show you the psalm. If if you've got uh, your Bible with you, just flip over to Psalm 82. It is probably not the psalm that if you're a Bible reading person and you read your Bible this morning, it probably wasn't the first chapter that you picked up this morning and said, ah, I'm a big Psalm 82 fan. I'll go meditate on that one for a minute. Psalm 82, it's so interesting. uh, In verse 6 is what Jesus quotes to them. He says, they, he said, are you mad at me because I called myself the son of God? Doesn't the Bible say you're all gods? Look at it. Verse six, I said, you are gods, lowercase g, sons of the most high. So sons of God, all of you, nevertheless, like men, shall die. Jesus is saying to them. Doesn't the Bible say that you're all highly valued by God? In fact, the same word, God, capital G, and God, lower G, Elohim, is used in Psalm 82, 6. But Hebrew's a poor language, meaning that that there's like not as many words as we have. So each word can have multiple meanings. So Elohim can mean God, capital G, or God, lowercase g, or judges, uh, or, or people in charge, servants of a highest standing. Jesus said, look at your lives. This is what he says to them in John 10. He said, look at your lives. You're all sons of God, lowercase, you're, you're all little gods, lowercase g, you're all judges. What he says to them in that moment is, and your life is a mess. Look at you on your best days. Really examine yourself. He says, so how much more when you look at my life and my works can I say that I'm the son of God? And then he begs them. Essentially, he says to them, look, I know you don't like me, I don't meet your expectations in so many ways. And you know what? We'll deal with that later. Just look at my works and believe. And I realize that the Lord has not met so many of your expectations. I know He hasn't. Whether it's career, whether it's family, whether it's relationships, whether it's your economics, whether, you know, whatever it is, I realize. And I'm looking out and I know some of the hurt in some of your lives. I, I realize the Lord has not met your expectations. But I challenge you to examine what he promises versus what you're longing for and just see if what he promises isn't even better. Believe in what he's done. Believe, look at what he's done in other people's lives that you know. Some of the greatest apologetics for the Christian faith are some of the people sitting around you. You see how the Lord has carried them through so many things. And yet they pick up stones. He pleads with them. And they pick up stones. Try to arrest him, but he escapes from their hands. And why does he escape from their hands? Because he's so strong. John 10, 18. Jesus says, no one takes my life. I I lay my life down and I take it back up. Jesus was going to die when it was divinely time for him to die. Nobody was going to take him out. You know, (laughs) there's that, do you remember the old Sheryl Crow song, Strong Enough? It's a great song. I mean, It's not like a great, it's a great song. Anyway, it's just, it's a a great song. Sometimes those songs become great because of when you first heard them and what was going on in your life. But she says in that song, basically, are you strong enough to be my man? You remember that? And then she says, when I've shown you that I just don't care, when I'm throwing punches in the air, when I'm broken down and I can't stand, would you be man enough to be my man? She divulges in the song that she's a mess. But the last line of the song is, please don't leave. I think what we see in John chapter 9 with the blind man, what we see in John chapter 10, the good shepherd, what we see in John chapter 10, the second half, this bold, strong man who's confronting these folks who eventually will go to the cross of his own accord and will rise again of his own accord. He is strong enough, and he's the only one who's strong enough. After this, he heads back near Bethany. He does ministry. Many people believe. But I think it would be good for our minds to rest on the hands that uphold the sheep. Look with me, if you would, in Isaiah 49. This is a good word for all of us, whether you've been walking with the Lord for years and years or whether the Lord's working on your heart and you're considering starting to walk with him today. In verse 14 of Isaiah 49, it says, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. When Jesus talks about that the shepherd holds the sheep in his hands, there's one set of hands, the father's, It remained unmarred. But the other set of hands, the shepherd's hands, have scars in them. Because the shepherd, he left the sheep to go to the cross of his own accord and receive the nails in his hands. And when he resurrected, he could have completely been transformed his whole body. But when he visited Thomas, it's clear that he chose to leave the nail scars for us to see. So even now, the shepherd, who we one day will all see face to face, has his palms pierced, for our transgressions. In a very real sense, our names have been engraven on his hands. And so my encouragement, if you are a follower of the Lord, if you've heard his voice and follow him and he has called you and by his grace he has saved you, is to take a deep breath and truly trust him with your life. You can run around and fret all you want, but if you're in his hands, what's the point? And if you're not yet there, I would just ask you what is it that you're trusting in? And is that thing good enough to keep you forever, or will it just be a momentary comfort? And in the next week or two, you'll be looking for something else to hold you in its hands. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this word. Jesus is so good, so strong. Lord, he is to be praised. I thank you that on his palms, our names, the names of his sheep, were engraved on his hands. Lord, would you help us to stop wrestling, to stop fighting? Would you help us to truly rest in the good shepherd? And I thank you, Father, that you loved us so much that you sent your son. So in Jesus' name we pray.